Cowboys, how y'all doing? Welcome to ABC Wulong Club, an episode-by-episode digest of Cowboy Bebop. My name is Colin Tanner. And I'm Steve Cuff. And every week at OptimismVaccine.com, we're celebrating the 20th anniversary of Cowboy Bebop. We're giving you behind-the-scenes info, fan theories, creator history, Bebop influences, and so much more. And Steve, here we are. We are in the second half of Cowboy Bebop. We're halfway through the entire series. How you feeling so far? I'm feeling pretty good. I don't think I hate anime right now. Uh-oh. Well, hey, like I said, we're only halfway through. Give it time. Plenty of time. Is this going to be like a Twin Peaks Season 2 thing where I get like really on board and then they ruin it because they have that whole subplot with Jim? Games and you know what I'm talking about? Anyway, we are here to talk about some Cowboy Bebop history as we always are. And this segment right here is one I've been looking forward to from the very beginning. We are going to be talking about the history of Cowboy Bebop on home media. It's how I was introduced to the show. It's how a lot of people are introduced to the show. And I think if you were around back then, it's very different than the Adult Swim audience because they turned on something TV and they saw something amazing. You know, back in the day, it was a real risk. You take that DVD home, you pop it in, you're like, don't be crap. Don't let my $30 turn out to be garbage. And Cowboy Bebop was a very very good investment. How many poor children spent like 30 bucks in like the infancy years of eBay on a bootleg Cowboy Bebop DVD that didn't work? Oh, not many. No, no, no. They would buy VCDs bootlegged on oh. eBay like I did with Helsing. Anyway, let's move on. In 1928, the United States government granted a patent to John Logie Barrett for his Phonovision system and its Phonovision disc. Once connected to a television, yes, there were televisions back in the 1920s, the device would allow users to capture and receive broadcasts for later viewing. And while this affordable solution was light years ahead of its time, it remained a relatively obscure concept to all but the most diehard of tech enthusiasts for nearly 50 years. Now, flash forward past a dozen failed attempts. Sorry, Betamax. You ever use a Betamax? No. My family was a, uh, a VHS family. I've seen Betamax tapes, but I've never, never really experienced the Betamax lifestyle. I wonder if Cowboy Bebop was transferred on Betamax. Probably, because that was the TV standard. Well, you know, Betamax was the superior format. But unfortunately, like many of these format wars where you have things like HD DVD versus Blu-ray, whatever it comes down to, it doesn't make a difference. Or RIP Laserdisc, even though you were way better than the VHS tapes of the day. Oh, we'll be talking about laser disc but in case you don't know kids betamax you can only hold an hour of video not good for consumers and you can't record football games i need my eight hour vhs baby well in 1976 the japanese victor company aka jvc launched the home video system or vhs in their home country which was japan it's in the name, kids. Figure it out. Two years later, MCA's DiscoVision made its debut in North America, later to be renamed the LaserDisc. It was the first consumer optical disc product ever produced. By the early 1980s, the concept had taken off in Japan, especially when it came to animation. The anime industry exploded that decade with new artists and studios and genres and plenty of avenues for home media. Previously broadcast anime episodes were released on VHS, creating a whole new collector's market. And in 1983, Bandai Visuals released Dalos, or Moon Base Dalos, a planned television show that was canceled during its early production. Rather than scrap the work that Studio Pero had already done, Bandai put it on a VHS as an exclusive, making it the very first original video animation or OVA. Original video animations did not air on TV, but became huge components of the anime industry with films, shorts, and complete run series. <clears throat> this also allowed for more graphic adult content than would be allowed on television, and yes, this is where hentai really begins to take off, so... Hell yeah! You're welcome, Steve. <sighs> 
And I think this aspect really gets overlooked when we're talking about the growing popularity of anime in North America and why it still remains relatively cultish. You know, it still doesn't quite feel mainstream. Television shows here in the United States were completely disposable. Maybe. Just maybe. Some random company like CBS would drop three episodes of Garfield on VHS. I'm sure we all owned one. But if you were looking for something like Law & Order or Cheers... That was just an alien concept. Jeez, I had a, a few of the early Simpsons DVDs. I know that. Uh, but I remember seeing stuff on, on VHS. Like, I remember seeing Friends and the West Wing and stuff like that. So a lot of that mid-90s to early 2000s stuff uh, during sort of the waning years of, of VHS. But there was, like, no consideration for chronology in these, like, VHS collections. It's like, here's the best episodes with Darkwing Duck. I don't know. I love Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the TV, oh, yes. the TV cartoon show. Uh, the movies as well. But most mostly the cartoon. Oh, yeah. And I remember, like, if you got one of the VHS tapes, it was random episodes. And even at one point, I think it was Pizza Hut, was giving away these VHS tapes, and they would contain, like, two or three episodes, and that was it. And that's just how it was. If you wanted to see all of a TV show, you had to set your VCR to record the episodes. That was it. That's really where the original <laughs> full series completion has happened, because people would trade the tapes on eBay and things like that. Now, let's go back to the 1980s. In fact, the late 1980s, here in America, distribution companies like Steamline Pictures began importing and redubbing anime for American audiences. Now, as we've discussed in the past, anime has been on American television for decades. It just so happens the viewers had no idea that Speed Racer or Astro Boy were Japanese cartoons. When the 90s kicked off, there was an audience for this brand new Japanimation. Yes, they really called it that. With series like Rama One Half and OVAs like Project Eiko. And that's not even discussing the fan communities that subtitled animes and sold them in the gray market. All of this is to say that home video and anime are forever linked. Anime was instrumental in popularizing the VHS and Laserdisc in Japan, while VHS largely created the anime fandom in America. Now we're going to talk about Cowboy Bebop on home media, but before we go any further, I do want to mention the excellent Cowboy Bebop website, futureblues.com. It's been around forever, and it's an excellent resource. I cross-referenced the information there with some used Japanese shops, and it was one-to-one. -one. So it's safe to say for most of your information, futureblues.com, excellent website. Now it's actually a bit difficult to nail down when exactly Cowboy Bebop was first released to home media. And that's probably because of the oddly titled Cowboy Bebop Session Zero, which was a 27 minute behind the scenes documentary with staff interviews and clips from the show. Does this really count? I guess, we're just gonna go with it. So, Session Zero was released on VHS, Laserdisc, and DVD on August 25th, 1998. If it seems a little early for DVD, well, it was. Check out the pricing right here. VHS and Laserdisc each cost 1,800 yen, or $18, while the DVD cost 2,500 yen, or $25. And it included two extra minutes of footage, apparently. That's a pretty good deal, 27 minutes for $25? Yeah, it's, uh, it's something. I don't think we can really throw shade because, like I said, those old Teenage Ninja Turtle VHSs and Garfield tapes, those were like $40. They were ridiculous at first. Now, here's what's really weird about Session Zero. This was put out two months after the show stopped airing on TV Tokyo and two months before it started airing on Wow Wow. So, hmm. who was this for? I don't know. And if you're a Cowboy Bebop completionist, don't worry, all of the features have been included in the re-releases over the years. All right, Steve, now let's take a look at this. This is Cowboy Bebop Session Zero. It is a VHS tape. It's, it's a clamshell too. It's like, it's a nice tape. Love me a good clamshell. But we got on the cover here, we got Spike and we got uh, Vicious and a Rose and they're all 
drenched in blue, but we got a red rose. Now, this actually looks pretty badass. Like, if I, if I didn't know what this was, I would be compelled to check it out. It looks like a screenshot from the old video game Snatcher. You remember that? <laughs> oh, yes, very much so. Which was really the art style of the era. Like, the covers of anime are so gorgeous. Mm -hmm. So the reason I brought up the odd timing before is because the next release, Session 1 on VHS, DVD, and Laserdisc wouldn't come until December 18th, 1998, four months after Session Zero, and two months after the show debuted on Wow Wow. That's super weird. But from then on, everything was slotted in a uniform pace. Sessions two through nine, yes, they had nine DVDs in Japan, were released once a month on the 25th, which is kind of weird because that's not a consistent date. No. And also, so you're spending 25 bucks a pop on these things? Oh, no, 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 no. Each of the sessions include three episodes, except for the final collection that had two episodes. And they each cost 68,000 yen, or around 68 goddamn dollars. Oh my God. You're going to spend nearly $70, plus like tax and stuff, once a month to collect this. That's right. And each DVD has like two or three episodes on it. So ultimately, across 10 DVDs, you're spending $700 to collect these. Is that right? That, if you want uh, Session Zero, that is absolutely the case. But on the plus side, the VHS and the Laserdisc and the DVD all cost the same now. That's got to go for something. <laughs> now, the final bit of the collection was released on August 25th, 1999, exactly one year to the date of Session Zero's home video debut. Despite only having two episodes, it still costs 6,800 yen, except on Laserdisc, where its price was reduced to 5,000 yen. How generous. Oof. Uh, if we could take a sidebar right here, I bet you're wondering, wait a minute, VHS and Laserdisc and DVD all cost the same? Well, yeah, Laserdisc was hugely popular in Japan because they actually priced the discs right. Here in America, they tried to price gouge right out of the gate. They made almost like a boutique item, and because of that, it never took off. Uh, but Japan bought the expensive players because the quality was obviously better, and the discs and tapes cost the same. You, Why would you not get a Laserdisc if you had the option? Yeah, absolutely. Laserdisc looks infinitely better than a VHS tape. And honestly, like the way that Laserdisc technology had progressed, especially in Japan, if you had a nice Laserdisc player, it probably looked better than an early DVD, to be oh, honest. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And if I'm not mistaken, I think Laserdiscs are analog. They're not even digital. Yeah. And I mean, they, they certainly have their downsides. One, they're gigantic. Two, you literally have to flip them over like an LP playing on a record player. But other than that, they were pretty cool. And they had special features. They did. Anyway, let's actually take a look at the VHS covers. Like I said, we only have a few of these right here. So this is Cowboy Bebop Session 1, and there's this look on this VHS tape where it's done um, vertically instead of horizontally, because horizontally you'd be basically drawing to a square, and this is essentially like a widescreen cover. You have to hold the VHS to its side. Uh, and we have Cowboy Bebop. They're actually separated words that are stacked on one another. And here's the funny thing, this very first session, right? This very first session, it's the scene where Spike is meeting with Asimov uh, and he's got the sombrero on, which means the main characters don't appear on the very first VHS cover. You cannot see Spike or Jet or any of the main characters on this very first collection. Yeah, some interesting choices here. And, and it's odd too, because I mean, three fourths of this cover are taken up by literally just like a screenshot in black and white from the, the actual episode that, that is contained there within. Uh, but and then you have that vertical title and the font is cool and the spacing is cool and it's interesting looking. But all I can think of is like if this is on a shelf somewhere 
and I'm looking at this, and it doesn't have this horizontal alignment, and it's sitting vertically like, you know, VHS tapes do. This is an aesthetic nightmare. Well, like you said, I'm really glad you pointed that out, that they they have these desaturated colors. They drain all the colors. These are like black and white shots. But yeah, I mean, you wouldn't be able to see these really cool covers if you put it on a shelf. Yeah, so, and the rest of these, I mean, they're a little bit better, I guess. So you still have just these bizarro black and white screenshots, but, you know, you got one with Vicious and Spike here from, what is that, episode five? Yeah, it's Battle of Fallen Angels where he's got the gun and the sword. They're poking each other. Yeah, and then you have this shot of Edward from his debut episode when the uh, the big ship comes crashing down in front of him right before he hops on the bebop for the first yeah, time, right? when he's controlling it. Yeah, yeah. And these next ones are original, though. Really? Yeah, that's the craziest thing is I was looking at this art. This does not exist anywhere else except for these VHS covers. Interesting. I wonder if these, like, cut frames or something. But uh, one is Jet sitting at the bar, which is probably from the episode where he meets up with his old girlfriend, right? Yeah. The last one is and a saxophone? Yeah, Jupiter Jazz. That makes sense. But they don't have... uh... She just looks really sad about the saxophone. I don't recall that part from the episode. There is a lot of melancholy to these covers. You know, that's just how it works. It's pretty, yeah, somber, man. I think that just might be like promotional art. Maybe it appeared in a magazine or something. That seems entirely possible. Now let's actually get to the good stuff here. The laser disc covers are just incredible. And these are actually the covers that they use on the DVDs in Japan and in America. Although there were six DVDs here and there's nine DVDs here. So some of these covers got cut. So if you grew up watching those old DVDs, you're missing on some amazing covers. And like Steve mentioned, these are the size of like vinyl records. They are big. They're like the size of a medium pizza. So they look like album covers. It's super cool. Well, and even the way that they're laid out, they're laid out to look like actual album covers, which I guess makes sense because, you know, go to your local record store, look in the dollar bin and find some like, I don't know, Benny Goodman record or something, or, you know, just just some old like big band from the 1940s, 1950s, whatever, you know, uh, mom and dad jazz. And a lot of those records look exactly like this because there was a style that record companies would use when they would do like mass reprints of very popular artists just to kind of like cash in on like live records or greatest hits collections. And that default template is sort of similar to what we're seeing on these Cowboy Bebop laser discs. Yeah, and I, I would even say it maybe extends over to almost like Blue Note records, you know, sure, that looked yeah. a lot like this. Uh, what we're talking about is that there is a, a square image that takes up you know, three-fourths of the picture here. And at the top, there's just a very carefully laid out words, like Cowboy Bebop, first session, one of nine laser discs. Like, it's it's very professional, and they don't repeat any font anywhere. And yet, it, so it gives you that really sort of class to it that you just don't see in other DVD covers, if you ask me. So let's take a look at uh, session one right here. We get this amazing red cover. Spike is doing this cool kick in the air, but literally, he's uh, eclipsing his own face that's, like, staring out at the audience. Well, not directly at them. It's, it looks like he's distracted by something else. Such a cool shot. This is the same one that we saw here in America. Yeah, and the next one for the second session is similar, except this time it's Faye. And again, you have this like silhouetted, like large picture of her face in the background and then like her whole body in the foreground. The other thing about these two is each one for the actual picture of like the characters, if you will, they're two-tone colors. So it's one bright color and then black and that's it. I love how Faye is kind of like in this orange color. It's very unusual for her because you'd expect maybe the the neon yellow of her, uh, her latex outfit. But no, that yellow has been saved for session three because we have Ed. Super, super cool here because it basically Ed looks like she's swimming towards the, the camera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, if you look closely, that graffitied face is the face that she uses when she's online. Oh yeah, this the weird smiley face thing. Just a tremendous amount of, like totally captures the personality of, of who Ed is. Yeah, but like a graffitied 
brick wall in the background. So yeah, and then the fourth one is like this bright neon green. Uh, and again, you have the, the zoomed in silhouette of Jet this time. Super noir. And then there's this cool picture of him sort of with his back almost to the cover and he's in like a like a suit and a fedora. I think that suit appears briefly in Ganymede Elegy. All right, number five, we have the Jupiter Jazz disc right here, which is uh, another shade of green, but more of a, a jade, a very dark jade, and it's just Vicious. And we Vicious does not have the same uh, motif going on. There are not two Viciouses. He's standing there singularly uh, ready to remove his blade. He actually is pushing it up with his thumb and just staring directly at the, uh, at the audience. I love it. Yeah, and from there, they go from like single character covers to multi-character covers, I guess. Oh, totally ensemble, yeah. The sixth session is like a turquoise blue, but then you get basically all the characters. You get uh, a big zoomed in face of Spike with a like a cigarette dangling out of his mouth. There's Jet's head and then there's uh, most of Ed there in the corner. Who has a nose. She never has a nose. Yeah, it's weird that Ed has a nose. And then you get pretty much all of Faye. Okay, I don't understand what they're going for with this one on number seven. Seven is super weird. It looks like, like a, I don't know, like a early 80s, like, sad love song music video where a woman is like singing and then like a, a picture of her lover appears in the background. That's what it looks like to me. Except in this case, it is uh, Faye looking very forlorn and Jet looking kind of mad in the background. Yeah, it's super weird. Well, and then the eighth one is of course the best because it's it's just this like purple, it almost looks like a pencil sketch of Ed and Ayn. So clearly it's the best. Uh, if you actually had the DVDs back in the day, this eighth cover is the one that they used for the fifth DVD collection, oh. which is why it gets a little confused. Now, you're going to have to explain the ninth one to me, not because it's that complex of an image, it's it's really just Spike, but I can't read what's in the background of this, so you're going to have to tell me what it says. You'll have to find out in a future episode, but it does involve the Beatles, and uh, listeners will probably know what I'm talking about, but yes, this is Spike just covered in a brighter red, like a more calming red. He was a very angry red. And the very first one, this is a much nicer red. There you have it. We have all the Japanese releases. These are good. And I feel like there's variants of these, not the same, but at least like stylistically inspired by in other sets, uh, maybe, maybe the Blu-ray collections that have come out. I, I know I've seen this. There's at least one Blu-ray collection of Cowboy Bebop that uses this like, you know, black and then stark bright neon color look to it. Oh yeah, definitely all the American DVDs for sure. Like literally took these covers, but you're probably right. They they had like a bonus cover, I'm sure at some point in the future that, you know, because this is probably very nostalgic for Cowboy Bebop fans. But now, <laughs> boy, we have to take a look at the North American VHS covers, which I have never seen in my life. Never. In the year 2071, the planets are linked by a series of warp gates, enabling people to travel freely through space. But an accident during construction has left the Earth in peril. As different races and cultures gather, will chaos spread throughout the planets? Two bounty hunters, Spike and Jet, pilot the spaceship, the Bebop. Their mission, to clean up space by apprehending wanted criminals. Since airing in 1998, Cowboy Bebop has become one of the most successful anime series in Japan. Non-stop action, jazz music, and unparalleled sci-fi drama. Story by Hajime Yadate and character designs by Koji Kawamoto. Music by Yoko Kano. Cowboy Bebop is the biggest anime title of the year. It was released in both subbed and dubbed, which the subtitles were done by Anime Village, a now-defunct associate of Bandai. According to Future Blues, the first VHS forgot to dub a couple of lines in the preview trailer, so not the very best uh, of quality. And each VHS only includes two episodes, so there's the 13 collection, a 13-tape collection. So, uh, probably not the ideal way to watch the series. That's horrible. 
Yeah, these are ugly as hell. Like, if there was a poorly conceived and drawn 90s Cowboy Bebop comic, like, made by, like, Image or something, it would look like this. They're just cluttered and, and stupid. And it's weird, too, because these aren't, like, the images that they use. No relation. No. Because check this out. So we've got VHS-1. Uh, which, by the way, I will defend all these images. They look amazing in their original art form. They were cropped to hell, and the characters were sometimes trimmed out of different backgrounds and slapped on these VHS covers, and they'd never look natural. But this very first cover, I'd say, is probably the best. It's Spike looking like he's at Casino Royale. He's got the chips in front of him. He's happy to gamble. Jet's in the background. He's holding his fist. He's like, yeah, Spike, go for it. And Faye's looking like a femme fatale. But Faye... What does this have to do with Cowboy Bebop? Like, if you see this and you're like, oh, it's the gambling show. <laughs> it's, it's very funny if you're a fan of the show, but if you're not... You don't understand it. And even more confusing, like I just said, Faye is on the cover. They only have two episodes. Stray Dog Strut and Asteroid Blues. She does not appear until episode three. So she's not even in the show. Yeah, the second tape is, this is horrible. Yeah. It's just like titty time Faye over here. It has, like, her boobs are literally glowing. This has nothing to do with anything. And again, if I saw this on a shelf and I didn't know what the show was and I hadn't watched, you know, 14 episodes of it or whatever, how the hell would I even know what this is? I would assume this is some sexy time anime. Yeah. Maybe that's what they were going for. That is very true. I would say that... VHS 3 looks the most like the Image Comics cover because Spike looks like he's about 70 or something. <laughs> he's standing around with a cigarette and a background and he's next to Faye. They do not look like themselves at all. And Faye just, it took me for her to notice that Faye's pants are almost ripped in half and she's holding a gun for no reason. Yeah, that's hideous. And then, and then. <laughs> this is this is the cover for Ballad of Fallen Angels. The Heavy Metal Queen one, it looks like, uh, you know, you've seen the, the cover of Watchmen, the, the graphic novel. Yeah. It, it literally looks like Spike Spiegel came and sat on the art from Watchmen and just like broke apart under his weight. And now he's just like smugly sitting there with a cigarette like, hey. One of my favorite Spike drawings ruined by being just thrown into a background that just, the colors don't, they this don't D minus Photoshop. Like this is you. You wouldn't pass a class with this in, in like a community college intro Photoshop class. Yeah, look at this next one here. We've got um. I don't know fan art Ed. Yeah. No. This is some deviant art bullshit. This can't be real. She looks like some fucked up Cupid doll or something. And here's here's probably my favorite. Here is Jet standing with the net launcher in a gross ass green background. Oh, it's so cluttered and messy, and it's just ugh, Edge Lord Jet. No, oh, thanks. Oh, you're not going to like the next one then. This is for no. Jupiter Jazz. Again, this is porn. I, if I just saw this, I would assume this is hentai. How would I not assume that this is hentai? This is basically an upshot of Faye sitting down. And there's an upshot, I would say, of Faye sitting down in Jupiter Jazz, which is done in a very, within context, I think is very good. But this is just, look at her ass. Yeah. And then, oh, look at the <laughs> next one. It's the same thing. It's it's Faye, like, literally to get all of her lady bits in so you can, you know, get your little anime boner, they squish her in into the, the the frame and then for some reason the background there's like Jet and and Spike just like oh yeah. Okay well we get some good ones after this. There's actually a very cute Ed and uh, Ein on a scooter which is very cute. Yeah it's still messy though it's a better picture but it's just like what the hell is this? I've seen that art when it's actually printed out and it's very very good but you're right it's this clutter because like even the, even the next one like Sad Faye and Spike. What? Why with the all of it is just like somber femme fatale sexy time fey. Like I this doesn't tell me anything. At least this one's a little more noir-ish, but it's still 
weird in its sexualization. So the next one I think is actually the best of the entire bunch, but but that's only because they actually appropriately crop the image as opposed to just like trying to make it as wide as possible. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, it's also the least cluttered. Yes, if you're a fan of uh, of the uh, of the show, you probably have seen that image of a uh, Spike Fay, Ed, and Ayn. Everyone standing in front of a uh, on a police lineup. You know, it has their height and everything, and they just look really kind of moody. But we only see uh, Jet and uh, Spike in the shot. Oh, the last one's a real treat too. <laughs> yeah, look at uh, that. Just titty time with Faye again. It's a really nice drawing, but I don't like that it's being sold. That's what you're selling the show. It's just her basically in a breakfast at Tiffany's dress. But yes, I think we can both agree these are horrible covers. Yeah. Now, according to our old friend, thejazzmiss.com, these tapes were the very first way to watch Cowboy Bebop in North America, but their release dates are, well, alarmingly sporadic, if these yeah. dates are correct, which I have no reason not to believe them. Volume 1 launched on September 14th, 1999, but it wouldn't be until two months later, November 23rd, 1999, that Volume 2 was released. Then for some reason, it only took a couple of weeks, Volume 3 and Volume 4 were released on the same day on December 7th, a day that will obviously live in infamy. Then Volume 5 was later that month on December 28th. Volume 6 doesn't appear until February 8th. Volume 7th on March 7th. Okay, actually, I take it back. We're starting to get a steady flow right here. Volume 8 was on April 4th. Okay, Volume 9 was on April 25th. But the subtitled version didn't arrive until May 2nd for some reason. <laughs> then BAM! Dry spell. From April, nothing until July 3rd, Volume 10. BAM! Another dry spell. Until Volume 11 and 12 launch on the same day in September. <laughs> September 5th. So, between April, then July, then July, then September. Like the most sporadic releases. It's almost reminding me of Wulong Club. <laughs> no, the, the thing that I don't get here, the December 28th one, why would you do that? Why do you release something three days after fucking Christmas? That seems like a very poor decision. Also, the final release date included the second box set for the VHS tapes. And this is back in the day where subs cost more than dubs, so an English tape would cost 20 bucks, while subtitle Japanese would put you back $25, because they knew you wanted more. You're a bigger geek. Same with the box sets. $111 versus $158, and $98 versus $120, which I hate to say is not that uncommon of a price back in the day. Now we're going to go to my personal nostalgia zone, the DVD releases. Now, I don't want to be controversial here, but the dates listed for the DVD releases on Future Blues and Jazz Mess, I will say right now are incorrect because I was ordering those DVDs at Suncoast Video, so I know what was going on, so knock it off, everyone. However, the dates listed on Wikipedia of all places totally match my recollection. And unlike the previous Japanese and American releases, these were only $30. And you got four to five episodes. How nice is that? Anyway, Volume 1 debuted on April 4, 2000. Volume 2 on May 2nd, 2000. Volume 3 on July 13th, 2000. Now, the reason I know that this is correct is because I received my DVDs in January of 2001, but by mid-February, I was already re-watching the episodes, right? And it wasn't until April 4th, 2001 that Volume 4 was released, a full year after the very first DVD. Volume 5 released on May 2nd, and Volume 6 didn't come out until July 13th, 2001. I'm actually a really big fan of these DVD menus. Uh, they actually take that computer background that Ed uses with it almost looking like a CD player with track listings actually pops up and then you hear the song Tank, except for the final DVD where everything gets hacked. There you go right there. There's the DVD covers, which we once again have Ayn and Ed snuggling up together for volume five instead of uh, volume eight. Isn't it funny how people that know how to crop an image don't fuck it up? It doesn't. It, that seems like a pretty basic thing. Like my Photoshop abilities are well below the average person. And yet, I know how to crop an image. Imagine that. <laughs> yeah. Now, later that year, Bondi would release The Perfect Sessions, which is how a lot of my friends bought it, because this was right after Adult Swim started airing the show. It's basically just the original DVDs with uh, a box set and an art book and the first soundtrack. But check out this art. It's pretty cool, huh? 
Yeah, it's nice. It's it's almost like a sepia tone image of the whole crew. And, uh, you know, Faye isn't overly sexualized. You got everybody there. You get a little eye action. I mean, it's it's everything you can want. Everybody's smoking. <laughs> I feel bad for Ed. She's like, this is not good for my lungs. And oh boy, you think we're done? You think this is over? No, 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 no. This is where things get fucking stupid. Cowboy Bebop is done. There's a movie coming out. That'll be released on DVD. Big deal. But the show is done, right? It's been released on VHS. It's been released on Laserdisc. It's been released on DVD. And Blu-ray and HD DVD wouldn't be around for another five years. So there's obviously nothing to put out, right? Right? Wrong. Oh, dear. First off, there's the Cowboy Bebop compilation one and two in Japan that was later released as the best sessions here in America. What exactly does that mean? Well, it's six episodes that Sinitro Watanabe liked. Oh, and I guess they're in 5.1 surround sound, so that's worth 35 bucks. I mean, if you're an audiophile, sure, because the sound is great on the show, but only if you- Six episodes? Yeah, only if you get the whole series. That's just, that's a real dick move. Kind of regressive, if you ask me. You got 26 episodes, here's six, and we'll give you a little bit better audio. Doesn't this seem like we're going back to the 1980s with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle tapes now? Just random episodes on, on a tape. Now, over in Japan, things were just as crazy with Cowboy Bebop 5.1 audio DVD box set releasing on December 23rd, 2004 for 40,000 yen. That is $400, people. Jesus. How do they expect to sell any of these? Oh, they do every time. It's Japan. Now, the collection includes an original cover and a couple of commentary tracks with the Japanese cast and crew. It does contain all 26 episodes, but not the movie. This is a few years after the movie. That's kind of a ripoff. Yeah. Maybe there's some licensing deal with Sony. I don't, I don't know. Now, instead of just carrying that over to America, because <laughs> this is pretty obvious, right? Oh, oh, you have another box set over here? Just bring it over to America, right? You did the brand new 5.1 uh, digital audio? Bring it over to America, right? No, 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 no. They decided to re-release the entire series individually through DVDs yet again with Cowboy Bebop Remix. Between September 2005 and March 2006, all six volumes were re-released with the same cover art as the original DVDs. Now, surely we're slowing down, right? Nope, Cowboy Bebop. Extra Session DVD was released in Japan on January 28, 2005 for 4,000 yen, $40. It contains no episodes, just a bunch of special features and clips as well as an art book. What? <laughs> they just paid $40 for the extra shit? I'm pretty sure Session Zero's on there, which I, I'm sure maybe was not included on the 5.1 box set. I'm gonna have an aneurysm. Well, hopefully you bought that because the Cowboy Bebop HD Remaster box set released on February 22nd, 2008 had an all new video transfer for its 10th anniversary and none of those special features. <laughs> Wait a sec, and this is a ripoff anyways. Yeah. This, is, this is an HD DVD set? Or is it the format HD DVD? It is an HD DVD box set. So not HD DVD. It is a DVD claiming to have it. Well, it had an all new transfer. Yeah. And that's about it. <laughs> so that's not high definition. To be fair, it was only 29,940 yen, nearly $300. Oh, there God. I will say this very much. Uh, I saw the cover for the very first time. I'd seen the art floating around, but the cover is Spike uh, standing in a, uh, a doorway on a stone brick building with people blurring past him. I knew right away, holy shit, they just totally lifted that from John Lennon's rock and roll cover. That was one of his uh, uh, late 70s albums. It, really cool homage. Finally, we enter the Blu-ray era with the Japanese Cowboy Bebop Blu-ray box. That's what it was called. This came in three different versions, ranging from 26,250 yen 
yen to 42,000 yen. That'd be $420. Smoke it up. Uh, some had art books and a music DVD, but get a load of this bad boy with the goth font. Ooh, you know what that is, right? What? It's Crosby, Stills, Nash, and Young. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's so good. Because it literally says Faye, Jet, Ed, Ein, and Spike, Cowboy Bebop, and it's got the... Yeah. We'll talk about the picture in a moment, but that's supposed to be Cosby. That's the CSNY album from like 1969. Someone was actually kind enough online to take some high-res photos of the inside of this box set, and it is gorgeous. So in addition to the the CSNY cover to the actual box set itself, they have these like insert slips and I'm trying for the life of me to figure out what these are homages to, but I can't quite get it. The, the first one almost looks, and I have no idea what it is, but it has like a 1970s crazy Cowboy Bebop like super slidey font. Yeah, it looks like the like the American Graffiti soundtrack or something almost. And there's another one that's reminiscent of like a, a Hawkwind album. This is like good original and art. And you can actually see uh, over there they took all nine of the original covers of the DVD and they include them in there too. So you could just have the covers and the original VHS covers are in there as well. Now from there we have the two Blu-ray sets that were released in the UK. Finally the UK getting some love. Uh, July 20 29th, 2013, and September 23rd, 2013. And finally, we have the most recent Blu-ray in the United States, released on December 16th, 2014, with all the audio, all the features, all new transfer, everything in one box set. You can finally die in peace. Not to mention, it's only $30. $30 for the entire box set. $30 for an entire box set on a Blu-ray, the same price as one, one American DVD back in 2000. It's nice. It doesn't have the movie though, right? No movie because there's a licensing right with Sony that put that out. But it is a very nice set. I have held that set in my hands. It's nice. It's it's not big and bulky, like it's not one of these grandiose box sets, but it has everything that you want, so it's fine. But wait, there's more. One more. Oh yeah. This is some bullshit, by the way. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about it here because Funimation essentially crowdsourced a $250 20th anniversary Cowboy Bebop collection. They said they need 1,000 pre-orders to make it possible and they got that in short order. Now let's just basically look at this right here. This is a limited edition rigid collection box. That's what they call it. It's got the complete series and the movie all in one. I think that's because uh, Funimation finally stepped in and took care of that. It's got all the special features. You have two LP vinyls of the Cowboy Bebop soundtrack and they're red vinyls. A 200 page hardcover art book, newly translated linear notes by Dai Sato who wrote today's episode, as well as five lithographs. Pretty neat and some very, very, very cool covers here. No, this is a beautiful set, but it's also costs a king's ransom. Yeah, but it's still cheaper than anything they put out in Japan by like $150, which is insane. Yeah. And there's there's variants on this box set, right? With like special limited edition, like vinyl colorings. And it goes all the way up to like $500, right? Oh, oh yes. Yeah. So you can actually get a $500 set of this stuff. My God, it's it's a shame too, because there's things individually here that are lovely. I would like that vinyl soundtrack. Uh, the lithographs are beautiful and would look nice on a wall somewhere. Oh yeah. That that 200 page book, that would be an invaluable resource for this very podcast. But God, just, it really bothers me when you have something that limited, like literally limited to 1,000 copies, especially the information contained in the book, like this wealth of information that you're basically just gating off from 99.9% .9 of the community of people who love this. It's true, but if you know where Imager is, you'll find a lot of it. But wait, I almost forgot the most important home media ever in Cowboy Bebop. That's right, here it is. Behold, the Cowboy Bebop Session 1 
Universal Media Disc released exclusively on November 8, 2005 for the PlayStation Portable with two glorious episodes. It was such a hit, Bandai decided not to release any more. Can I tell you something? The very first time that I recall encountering Cowboy Bebop, because I thought about that, the very first time I recall personally encountering Cowboy Bebop was I was at a GameStop and I saw the cover of this and I was just like, what the fuck is that game? And I'm like, oh, it's a UMD. What the fuck is that? Well, I hope everyone found that as invaluable as I did. But Steve, today's episode is called Bohemian Rhapsody. What can you tell us about the band Queen? Never heard of them. No, I'm, I'm kidding. Uh, Queen was a rock band from England in the 1970s and 1980s, fronted by Freddie Mercury, who is known for his incredible range and almost operatic-like voice. Bohemian Rhapsody was an unlikely hit because it is incredibly long. Six minutes. Even in like the radio edit version, it's obscenely long. And in addition to that, it features like acapella breakdowns and an orchestra and there's all kinds of things going on that just don't happen in rock music, even with a band like Queen, who is known for kind of grandiose, over-the-top rock songs. And it's kind of remarkable, too, because Queen, like previous to this, they had really been more prog rock, or I guess by today's standards, it's more like classic rock. And when they put this out, it was pretty unusual. And there's that old myth going around about, oh, they wrote it in like five minutes or something like that. That's not true. There are instances of friends hearing Freddie Mercury playing it on the piano like a decade before this was ever recorded before it was ever in, even in Queen. Now, in case you've never heard the song, which is impossible, it's impossible that you haven't heard this song. It tells the story of a murderer apologizing to his mother before breaking into an opera choir <laughs> and a guitar solo. Uh, it's one of the most analyzed songs of the 20th centuries. There's full documentaries about the song. We haven't even brought up the album because the album is A Night at the Opera. The album is great, but it doesn't matter. This song is just so significant. Even if you were born well after the fact, movies like Wayne's World made sure that you knew exactly what this song was. Apparently it was recorded over the course of three weeks wow. using numerous day long sessions and cutting edge mixing and dubbing technology to give it its signature symphonic sound. Uh, someone was talking about how they were holding up the tape at one point and they could see through it almost perfectly because it had been recorded and dubbed and dubbed and dubbed so much. Uh, the song was an immediate Spanish hit, becoming number one single in a number of countries like the UK and Canada, but only number nine in the United States because of course, like you said, it's a very long song, so it did not get nearly as much radio play. Uh, not only that, but it actually returned to the billboards after Freddie Mercury passed away in 1991. What do you think of it? Do you actually like the song? Yeah. It's one of those songs that I've heard way too many times to be like, yes, I would like to listen to this song by Queen. That never happens. But I mean, the guitar solo totally rips. It's good. The production is ridiculous. Ridiculous, Like, just obscene. Like, if you got yourself a good pair of headphones, a nice stereo setup, oh my god, there's a lot going on in this song. And so it's, fu it's fun from a tactical standpoint. But yeah, it's one of those songs where it's just like, man, I've heard this so many damn times. That's like when people are like, oh, what do you think about Paranoid by Black Sabbath? It's like, I I've literally heard it 50,000 times. How about I Wanna Hold Your Hand by The Beatles? Again, 50,000 motherfucking times. Like, I, I don't know more. But the thing about those songs is at least they have the common courtesy to only be a few minutes long. Somehow, Bohemian Rhapsody is a song that you and I and everyone listening to this podcast and everyone who's not listening to this podcast has heard at least a thousand times in their life, but it's a six minute long song, which is 
crazy. Not only that, but it was also a promotional video, which essentially ushered in the age of high production music videos. Go back and watch this and then compare it to like anything else going on in the 80s. It held up. Yeah, I, I would say the Bohemian Rhapsody video is better than any early stuff that played on, on MTV. Because you got to think like when MTV started, it's not like everybody was doing music videos. So a lot of stuff they had, they had Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh, other than that, like the only person I can think of who did a lot of music videos in like the late 70s was Rod Stewart was super into them. Queen's Bohemian Rhapsody is a lot better than Rod Stewart's Do You Think I'm Sexy? All right, now, Steve, when did today's episode, episode 14, Bohemian Rhapsody air? I'm so glad you asked, Colin. It aired on TV Tokyo on June 5th, 1998. Mm. It aired on my favorite TV channel of all time, Wow Wow, on January 23rd, 1999. And on Adult Swim on October 14th, 2001. Very good. Well, we have the director who is Hirokazu Yamada, who directed Ganymede Elegy and Heavy Metal Queen, one of my favorite directors. I mean, I like almost all of the directors here by this point, but he stands out early. And it was written by Dai Sato, who wrote Jamming with Edward. I think it's safe to say we're going to see some similarities here, especially when we talk about the people that are living on the satellites and the people that were living on Earth. All right. Now we fade in on this episode and I'm already pissed. Why? Because the opening shot is Spike walking towards the camera, wearing those goddamn goggles, which we damn well know were shattered while he was fighting the lobster monster in episode 11, Toys in the Attic. What the hell? Uh-oh. Is this your audition? tape for cinema sins and don't give me that oh he bought new ones really because we have seen other bounty hunters we saw fatty and sympathy for the devil he did not have those special goggles maybe he's got multiple pairs uh, we saw a room full of bounty hunters and heavy metal queen they did not have those special goggles and we'll see jonathan later in this episode he too is a bounty hunter he doesn't have the goggles well you really gonna make me think that spike somehow is this genius he just has like the hookup for these magical goggles i choose to believe that the entire crew died in the previous episode after they were murdered by the lobster mold that sounds perfectly reasonable to me this episode kind of starts off in an interesting way because there's a lot of quick cuts between our main characters. So we start off with Spike and uh, we see a man with glasses and he turns around and Spike uh, cracks him in the face. And, uh, you know, they say to never hit a man with glasses, but uh, I suppose Spike's wearing glasses. So it sort of nullifies all that. Right. Uh, and then after that, we cut directly to Faye and she's on a subway. And of course, the camera is conveniently pointed where, Colin? Right on that booty. Oh, boy. Geez. Really surprising. So uh, Faye's ass, I mean, all of Faye, not just her ass, even though the camera would have us believe that she's just a butt, sneaks up behind a passenger and she uses like a small device and like tranquilizes him. Now here's a fun fact actually. This is the second time we've seen that contraption that she uses. Uh, the first time was in episode 3 Honky Tonk Women when Faye used it to call Gordon while she was handcuffed in the bathroom. I'm not really sure if they knew that, that they were reusing these objects, or if they're just like, I don't know we already we already came up with this drawing, use that. That's what knocks out the guy. This is the guy knocker outer. So now it cuts again and <laughs> we see Jet and and there's like a total of five, uh, I don't know, vagrants of some sort. And Jet gets them all with a net launcher that we first saw in episode two, Stray Dog Strut. Look at you paying attention. Yeah, love me a good net gun. Not to mention it was also seen in episode 11, Toys in the Addict, when uh, Jet lost everything when he was gambling with Faye. Oh, well, look at you being a big fucking nerd. Now, is it just me or are these random background objects doing a better job of selling toys than any spaceship ever did? Yeah, I want a net gun real bad. You want the spike goggles? Would like some spike goggles. We cut to a shaky withered hand coming 
standing on the darkness holding a king chess piece and placing it on an illuminated chessboard with the sounds of birds in the background. Yes. What, why is it? Why, what, really? You're into this? Yeah, because, you know, he looks like if Dr. Wily from Mega Man, like, got put into a home by his family because he was going senile, but they didn't really care about him. And then he got liver disease. And just like that, we're back on the Bebop with a super cute establishing shot of Ed and I'm doing absolutely nothing. They are just staring around at an empty room and yawning. And I love this. I love this so much because this has no point. There is no point to this whatsoever. I, they're establishing that Ed exists in the show. And I guess you could say that her being tired shows her ramping up her tension as she plays the chess game. You could say that. But you could say that in a much faster way. They just pause and let her have a good long yawn and have nothing going on before they all run into the room all at once. I love it. It's always interesting to me, too, because the way that they treat Ed often more of a piece of scenery, like she's set designed to them, but like as an audience, she's not that to us. Mm -hmm. So we see her, you know, acting goofy and crazy and messing around with Ayn, but everyone else in the Bebop is, we're serious bounty hunters doing serious bounty things. So yeah, Spike, Faye, and Jet, they're in the uh, living room? Is that what this is? I think we could call it that by this point. Can we call it the family room? Uh, anyway, so they, they, they kind of sulk around and then Ed finally asks them what happens and we get in quick succession of close-ups as all three of their eyebrows twitch. That's actually a Japanese thing, the twitching eyebrow. Here in America, it would be like, I'm going crazy, my eyebrows are twitching, but in Japan, it's like, I'm annoyed. Okay. This is bothering me. Is that is that like the anime tier? Oh, for sure. And also the nosebleed. Ooh. The Bebop crew <laughs> start complaining all at once about how they caught all the bounties and they didn't get any sort of like big clue. Yeah, this is super weird to me because they're literally like, oh, we caught 20 people. Oh, this sucks. It's like, what? Well, I'm sure that they didn't get that much money for them because they, they're trying to get to who's behind all of this and they got nothing. Well, do, and don't they mention at some point too that like they don't get any of the bounty money until they catch the ring leader or whatever. I might have completely missed that. But Ed asked them if anything stood out. <laughs> they all searched their clothes at the same time and all produce a king's piece. And they're all holding it exactly the same. Holy shit, what an intro. Can we talk about this for a second? We're only, no exaggeration, like a minute and 20 seconds into the episode. And already we've had four locations. We've seen everyone in the main cast and we've seen the man behind the scheme that's going to drive the main action. That is economic storytelling. Yeah, there's a liberal use of jump cuts here to get the job done. We get to our title card, which is is the song Doggy Dog, which we last heard in episode seven, Heavy Metal Queen. And the camera crawls up a long list of sides, pushing towards a futuristic glass and gold building that looks, well, kind of familiar. Yeah, it looks familiar, you big dummy, because it's modeled after the Sydney Opera House. So if you don't know, Sydney Opera House is one of the most admired and experimental achievements in architecture in the 20th century. Mm. It wasn't exactly popular when it was being built. Uh, construction started in 1958. But its unconventional design made each phase of development extremely time-consuming and costly. And it wasn't finished until 1973, which was <laughs> what? 15 years after they broke ground. And cost an estimated $103 million, which was a bit of a problem considering it's supposed to cost $7 million. And uh, I'm no mathematician, but mm, it's a little bit more. Uh, so yeah. We can uh, agree that that's a lot more than the $5,000 the government of New South Wales paid Jorn Utzen for his design. Call only really seeing it, I think, uh, when the Olympics were going on in 2000, it is really weird. It almost is like a bunch of shark fins, like three-dimensional shark fins popping out and colliding to one another. And the inside, all the acoustics, it's just amazing. Uh, you know what kind of reminds me of it? Although it's not exactly the same, obviously, uh, but it takes a few design elements from it. The uh, Milwaukee Museum 
which is modeled to look kind of like a fish boat thing, but in an abstract way. And I think it resembles the Sydney Opera House in a lot of ways. And that was an Australian, I believe, that designed that. Aha! Uh-huh. Also, you know, uh, what really reminds me of it is uh, this building in Cowboy Bebop. Oh, yeah, the show we're talking about. Because this is the head of the Gateway System building, which is kind of cool. We've seen the Gateway System for so many episodes. Now we see that there's actually, like, a company behind it, which I think is awesome, because before that, it just feels like abstract magic. Yeah. So we joined the head of the Gateway System, and he's complaining about how people are being petty and using paper letters to protest. Even their servers are down because they're getting all these emails, and there's this fantastic shot because it's all backlit. He's slowly being covered up by these stacks and stacks of paper until you can't see him. There's some line in here, too, where it just shows its 90s-ness, too, because they're like, yes, all these complaints, blah, blah, blah. I wish more people would use the e-complaint system or something like that. I'm like, <laughs> oh, we're going to have a lot more of that as this episode goes on. But how great of a shot is this? It reminds me totally of like an early Terry Gilliam, like a Time Bandits or something like that. Or a Hudsucker Proxy. Hey, Punch and Judy are back on Big Shot. Hell yeah. And they start explaining the Bebop crew's recent misfortunes, causing Spike to destroy the screen with a single kick while everyone sulks in silence. Oh, and you don't get the reward unless you find the mastermind, right? Shucks, howdy, that's right. Then the guys who cut him don't get a penny. Sorry, you guys. Why does no one complain about that? He just destroyed the TV. I don't know. It's kind of a dick move. Also, I like how Punch and Judy pop on because they're like, hey, here's some more exposition. Also, we're going to make fun of people. <laughs> yeah, they're making fun of them. And then we get this kind of like tall overhead shot of them all sitting around while the overhead fan rotates in front of the camera uh, until even the fan breaks down. I just love how it's just all bad. That is such a classic kind of anime trope of showing bad luck happening where just something in the background will break and they just notice it and they just go right back to talking. Bad luck dominoes falling. Not to mention that animation means that you just have uh, black outlines, one black outline that you're reusing over and over again to make the appearance of the fan moving and no one else has to move until the fan breaks. Really smart use of animation. Uh, we do get another quick glimpse at, at Hex to reinform the audience but I'm really more impressed by the, the panning establishing shot in the Astro Gates that's flying towards Mars. I'm impressed because I've seen this episode a bunch of times and only this time did I notice Wait a minute. They literally took the scene. They clipped it verbatim out of episode two, Stray Dog Strut. They just clipped it right out. Oh. Because well, I knew I'd seen it before. So at this point, we actually get to see like a step-by-step -step example of what this crime was. Because there's so much going on in the beginning of this episode that you're like, wait, what? Gates and the Gate Company and something. And then there's all these people. And He's got a net launcher. He has goggles that are broken. Yeah. So a, a group of three men, they kind of spacewalk over to the Gateway toll booth and they snip a wire and then they reconnect it with a hacking device. And what that does is it steals steals passing ships like entire bank account and then scatters the money around to untraceable uh, accounts on Europa uh, with like hundreds of small transactions. And this scam has become so widespread that the thieves aren't even aware of each other and have like nothing in common. 20, 25 people involved in this and... At least. That's the ones that they caught. They don't... They have nothing in common. There's, there's no... There's nothing. They're all, like, some of them are criminals, some of them are, like, they don't have criminal records at all, and some of them are old, and some of them are young, black, white, all over the place. Kind of an interesting scam. So I guess this would be like if somebody figured out a way to, I don't know, hack a toll booth or something and, and steal the money out of there. Or I'm sure there's some asshole doing this with bitcoins or something right now. I just, I, I remember watching this, and even, like, this viewing, just when Jet's like, they have nothing in common, he's going through all of the different details. Mm -hmm. Even though I know what's going to happen, I'm like, that's such a cool plot, 
because like it immediately makes you more intrigued that they've gone to all this trouble and they have zero clues. Yeah. What's really cool though is Faye finds out that they've actually been selling these hacking devices and manuals on a now defunct website for 30,000 Wulongs each, which I guess let's just say Wulongs are wildly inconsistent, but let's just say that that's the same as yen. That'd be like $300. So Hex has really thought this through. Like he's probably adjusted for inflation on what this is going to be. And I think the reason he's charging money for it, this is just my theory. Uh, just a game theory is because he wants people that are actually going to do it. Because if he gave it away for free, probably less people would do it and more people would find out. He wants to make sure that they're going to fall through. I love the flyer that Faye holds up too. Because she's like, yeah, I took this flyer off a guy. And then she holds it up and it's just like, <laughs> it looks like when you were 14 and your friend's band was playing at like the fucking youth center or the skate park or something. And they just made a flyer and then made copies at Kinko's. Like it is horrible in the best way. Absolutely. It's so cheesy. And really think about this. This is a show from 1998. This feels astoundingly contemporary. I can't believe it. Like the entire uh, hacking systems. And I tried looking into a lot of different stories of hacking over the years. Nothing resembles this. This is such an original plot. <laughs> and we do get this amazing next scene where Ed is trying to hook up a chessboard because she likes the chess pieces. <laughs> and she electrocutes herself. You dead? Hey. <laughs> <laughs> Talk about that animation for a second when she when she props up and she's like swinging back and forth. Oh yeah, so good, hooting and hollering as Ed does. Faye does not care if she's dead. Well, she she looks like she kind of cares. Maybe just maybe just a pinch of caring. Yeah. Oh, we got some sweet ass dated '90s internet talk coming up here. I'm way into this. Uh, well, here here it is. Dated internet lingo is my motherfucking jam. Boot up Netscape, bitches. Here we go. When Ed turns on the chessboard, it says Outernet, which is just no, no, nope, not even close. It's the Outernet, man, because it's outer space. Eh, okay, you know what? Actually, I can handle that. There it is. This is a memory cartridge for playing e chess. The memory chip stores data within the piece. Yeah, you can activate one game, it connects to the net. <clears throat> See? And so this has something to do with the incidents at the gate? Not a bit. In Ed voice, I was like, it's on the net! <laughs> and Jet encourages her to play against her cyber opponent. Hell yeah. yeah I, it kind of makes sense coming out of old man voice, but it's still like, no, he he's, he's younger than everyone listening to this show. This should not yeah. be. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand. Like, I love playing some good online e-games, you know? When I, when I load up Fortnite, I'm just ready to find a cyber opponent who can truly challenge me. Oh my god. <laughs> We rejoin Chessmaster Hex to see he's playing against Ed, and he's already happy with the first mood. He's in a great mood, and apparently he also has a pet parrot. Huh. But where did chess come from? I don't know, Colin. Tell me. I will. We're gonna go all the way back to 6th century India. Back then, pieces represented divisions of the military rather than individuals. The game traveled from India to Persia, Persia to Mongolia, Mongolia to Uzbekistan, Uzbekistan, I should say, and then Uzbekistan to Russia, and many more countries well before ever landing in the United Kingdom around 900 years after its creation. And this is where many of the familiar names and rules begin to take hold. Though it's crucial to note, this is a revision of a previous work, not an original invention. It is from India or from somewhere else, not the UK. And funny enough, as common as it is today and in schools across the world, chess was a very controversial game for its time. Louis IX attempted to ban gambling in France, which basically banned chess. 
But for whatever reason, no one followed the law. And even stranger, none of the police enforced it. St. Peter Damien warned of chess's evil influence on society at large, as some men were known for becoming physically violent during a game. Damien even denounced the Bishop of Florence for playing chess. But the bishop actually explained that chess was free of chance and only a skilled and thoughtful player would succeed, thus making it a virtuous game. By the late 19th century, chess tournaments were everywhere, but it wouldn't be until 1886 when Johannes Zuratok lost to Wilhelm Steinitz that a world chess champion was declared. Now, some believe Steinitz was the champion dating all the way back to 1866, though he himself never claimed the title until 20 years later. Steinitz's play style was, well, controversial to say the least, because he was cautious and calculated in a time when most strategies were to simply bombard an opponent with attacks. <laughs> People even refer to him as cowardly in his play style. He would hold the title until 1894, passing away six years later as a penniless resident of the Manhattan State Hospital. Sounds a lot like our man Chess Master Hex. Yeah, kind of. No, in case you've never played chess before, hey, no judgment here. There's a lot of rules and people get intimidated. The game was built around six pieces, a pawn, rook, knight, bishop, queen, and king, which move about an 8x8 grid, each with a limited pattern of movement. Now, the end goal is not to kill the king, but to trap them from any possible movement. A player will say, checkmate, when the king cannot be moved to a safe square. Hey, smarty pants Colin, mm. did you know that there's actually a few references to real chess matches in this episode? I did not know that. Uh, neither did I. Uh, I mean, I couldn't personally recognize them because I'm not into that stuff. Uh, but they were mentioned on the Cowboy Bebop wiki, Ooh. which I read before I came here just to remember the plot because I watched the episode two days ago. <laughs> the matches were Paul Morphy versus John William Shulton and Paul Morphy versus Adolf Anderson. Oh, that's a time when you could have a name like Adolf. You can't do that now. Mm -hmm. Can't really do that, no. I'm gonna have to move down the alphabet. So uh, I'll probably gonna name my first kid Beat Off. Morphe was the unofficial world champion between 1858 and 1862 and is often considered the greatest player of all time. Huh. Which is weird because I mean, people say that, but they're like, oh, so-and-so was the, the father of basketball. And it's like, yeah, he was a five foot four white guy that would get ripped to shreds. I don't understand though. Stennis never played against him? Yeah, well, I mean, we, we did talk about Stennis instead of Morphe and and uh, that's because Morphy was only a player for a very short time. He retired from chess in his early 20s, and he refused to ever pick up the game again. What, and murder his wife? I don't know. Uh, he, instead, he attempted to start a law career, which was a dismal failure. Though he did make an appearance at the 1883 New York tournament. Uh, Steinitz actually met with him and requested a match, and Morphy refused and wouldn't even speak to him about chess. Uh, well, So if you ask me, Morphy was a lucky punk who ducked out 20 years before the game got real. Yeah. Fuck that boy. Uh, and if you are professional chess player right now why yeah we got robots now quit so we're back with jet black in an elevator and the moment the door opens up i love that shot of how the, the door opens up and we see jonathan look shocked and then just annoyed and he's like it's you <laughs> he hates jet so much it's you <laughs> you too eh john you went through all that trouble for nothing like an amateur <laughs> this one is much tougher than it looks jet Jonathan is such a weird character to me. Like, it's... I, I can't even put him into words. Like, he serves this, like, Ned Flanders role where everybody hates his guts, but also he doesn't pop up enough as a consistent character, so it took me a second to be like, who the fuck is this guy and why do we hate him already? It's a very Guy Ritchie-esque character, as we'll see later on. 
Now, Jet actually meets with the head of the gateway system because he mentions chess, and that actually scares the guy running it. He walks into the office, and he lights up a smoke, and he quickly puts it out because there's no smoking allowed. Come on, Jet, you usually know better than that. It's the future. We have laws now. Yeah, really? Uh, Jet proceeds to pressure the man, saying that he knows he's lying about the bounty, and even tossing the chess piece at him before being thrown out. But it turns out this was intentional. He was just trying to rile him up because the cigarette was a listening device. How cool is that? Sad news, everyone. There's no cigarette transmitters just yet. FM transmitter manuals are increasingly small, though they are still miniature square circuit boards. Dang, so they don't fit in the cylinder. Nope. But hey, here's a fun story. In 1946, the United States ambassador to the Soviet Union, W. Averill Harriman, was given a gift. A giant carving of the Great Seal of the United States was placed in his nearby Moscow study. And when we say Great Seal, we actually mean like, you know, the seal with the with the eagle. There's not like a big ass seal. No, no, no. It's like, oh, oh, oh. Of a miracle. The eagle's holding the stuff with his claws. Yeah, the eagle holding shit with his claws. Unbeknownst to Harriman, there was a bug behind the seal. It was incredibly hard to detect because it had no power source and was activated by a radio beam from the Soviets. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't be until 1952, six years later, that it was finally discovered. Oops. It's some Cold War stuff. I love it. It's so insane. Most powerful people in the world just trying to listen to each other. I always think back to the uh, Jean-Pierre Melville movie, Les Samurai, but there's that great scene where they, they try and bug the guy's, the killer's room, and they basically hang up something the size of a fucking baby monitor, and then they just like pull the curtains over it, and they're like, he won't notice this. It's like, uh, yeah, he probably will. So, uh, yeah, listening stuff back then for spies, mm, not the most discreet. Back to the show, Jet's tapping away at his listening device, and luckily for him, the men inside the office are reminding each other exactly what's been going on for the past few weeks. <laughs> they even named Chessmaster Hex. This is a game, all planned out in advance. You gate guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You put a bounty out on some mastermind who may not even exist, which means you don't want the police to know who's really behind this. You suits are using us bounty hunters like pawns, and I don't appreciate it. Bounty hunters should look for bounties. I suggest you do that. Maybe you used to work for the ISSP, maybe not. Either way, you'd be wise to drop this line of inquiry. Cool visual choices I want to talk about. When Jet is in that office, we get this really unusual overhead fish eye shot, very smooth edges for no apparent reason. There's a studio that was founded after Cowboy Bebop by a number of the animators. It was called Bones. And those early years, they loved using fish eyes. So I think that's this kind of like the beginning of that style taking root. And I love these odd camera choices too, because we get to see Hex's finger come down on the board and it's warped by the angle. And we're going to see more of that in just a second with Ed playing and, and clapping with her feet. It is just a lot of fun choices. Uh, so by this point, Steve, what the hell do you think is happening? What is Hex? Why is this going on? I have no idea what he is. Like, other than a cackling old man with a parrot who has liver spots and looks like geriatric Dr. Wiley. Like, I don't know. Are you thinking he's going to turn around and be like, I see you finally found me, Bebop crew? Like, are you expecting the evil? Yeah, like some evil shit or something like that. But I, I'm not entirely sure, like, what the motivation is. Because he's clearly living in, like, a derelict dumping ground of some sort. Like, it's not the best looking spot. There's fucking pigeons everywhere. It's not great. Not, not a good place to live. Uh, so his scheme doesn't seem to be paying dividends. I, I don't know. You know, it's funny that you mentioned the uh, the parrot earlier because I looked it up and there's no connection between parrots and chess. Though allegedly there's at least one parrot who knows how to play chess. 
which is kind of cool. Uh, but they're considered to be one of the most intelligent bird species on Earth. Known for their ability to replicate nearby sounds, there are nearly 400 different kinds of parrots. Dude, old people love birds. That's the connection. Absolutely. Because they get all old and they're like, I don't have any friends. They all died, but you can talk to me. Like, that's serious shit. Old people love birds. Well, they're also mostly vegetarian. Well, they eat seeds and fruit. That's vegetable, I guess. And some kinds can live up to 80 years of age, which probably makes them pretty good pets for old people like heck. Alright, so we finally get the backstory to Chessmaster Hex. It's a cool name. And this is the favorite backstory of Cowboy Bebop one-off villains. I don't know if you know that. Oh, really? Yeah, he's a super old guy, about 98, allegedly. Uh, which means he was born in 1973, if we're following the timeline here. That's alarming. He was a chess prodigy, and he joined the Gateway Research Project when he was 30, which would mean 2003, <laughs> five years after Bebop aired. They uh, really took some risks on this timeline that didn't pay off. Anyway, he's worried about the gates being produced too quickly and is fired for his troubles. That seems very realistic, doesn't it? That's going to be like, this is dangerous, and they just fire him? Like, that is a story that repeats itself all the time. I just like how I keep thinking back to that episode with the kid who plays harmonica, but it's like, it's not a baby, it's a really old guy. Yeah. Yeah. Cowboy Bebop loves old people. You know, but let's talk about that for a second. Of course, he became immortally young because of the gate explosion. Do you think that's what Chessmaster Hex was talking about? Probably. I'm sure it's all linked together. Well, without any more clues, the crew turned to Ed to help locate Hex. And for the second time in the series, we discover that Ed can grow sharp teeth and hiss like a wild animal out of nowhere. Hey, Ed. Edward is very busy. Try later. Forget later. We need some help now. Give me that stool. Ed, we're trying to find a guy named Hex. He's in cyberspace. Hex? Hex the chess master. Edward is playing chess against him right now. Huh? The gang actually tracked down the source really fast, and that actually worries Spike. He says this is far too easy for a smart guy. I like that he actually includes that. I mean, it's a hint of what's actually been going on, but at least it shows us that Spike is smart enough to know this is weird. Jet goes on to warn Spike and Faye that this is a lawless bohemian base, although he doesn't say bohemian exactly, but I think this is the very first time since, like, maybe honky-tonk women or, you know, whatever. I feel like this is the very first time that bohemian, that, that word, really fits with the episode because we're going to see a lot of bohemians. Mm -hmm. Fucking hippies. I hate them. We could probably do an entire episode on the beat movement that sort of inspired Cowboy Bebop, but we're not going to. Just go read Kerouac, kids. Don't read Kerouac if you're over the age of like 25. No, well, why not? He's a bad character. I mean, he's a bad guy. That's fine. I think it's weird, though, because if, if you read Kerouac in high school, you're like, yeah, this is what I want to do. <laughs> and if you read Kerouac after you go to college and you're like an adult with a job, you're like, this guy's a fucking asshole. Read the Dharma bums. Don't read On the Road, then. And if you like it, then go read On the Road. Uh, and also, I do want to mention, you know, we do have that Bohemian vibe. We'll get to it in just a moment. But we are having one of my favorite songs in the entire series. It's called Piano Black. That, that piano and the really percussion metallic sound. That do that, do that, do that, do that. Remember, this could be a trap. A continuation of the game. Whatever happens, happens. And this is also where we get one of Spike's most famous lines, whatever happens, happens. I tried to Google around to find out where that came from, but no reputable sources. People kept saying Eleanor Roosevelt, but no, she didn't. All right, so somehow we've already made it to the third act of this episode, which is kind of crazy because almost nothing has happened at this point. Like, <laughs> yeah. I don't know. I mean, I guess there's some rising action here, but I, I, we, I guess we're getting towards a climax and a resolution, but here we are. <laughs> 
<laughs> so Faye and Spike enter this elaborate and disheveled hideout that's, I don't know, like, the, yeah, this colony of bohemians that are just floating around in old, decrepit gate parts, which who knew that you could build a civilization out of that? Spike even ties his ship up to a random section because there's nowhere to park, and his magnetic boots are back. Yay! We haven't seen those since, uh, what was it, episode three? His boots, not anyone else's. Well, and then Faye has magnetic boots, too, and we get a shot of her in those, and uh, her magnetic boots are high heels? Uh, high heels are comfortable for women. That's what I've learned. Yeah, that's, that's what I've learned, too, and easy to walk in. Well, outside, Jet receives a phone call from Jonathan, who's been tracking them the whole time, and he fires a plasma cannon to kill Jet, maybe? I, I don't really know. But it misses and sets off an explosion behind the bebop, and then he says goodbye. That part's fun. I like when he says bye, because he's like, bye! What, what was the point of that, Jonathan? Why did you do that? That was unnecessary. Yeah, it's polite to say goodbye. That's true. He was hanging up. Uh, I do think it's kind of cool that the plasma cannon fires quicker than when we see it on Spike's swordfish, because it's a bigger ship, and the swordfish probably needs longer to build up the energy. It's just that extra bit of detail. Now, we see this extensive montage of Spike and Faye using their trackers, which we last saw in episode 11, to track the lobster monster. They're going through these corridors covered in random garbage. Spike spots a floating cat and then flies past two dogs that are flying in the opposite direction. They're like barking at them, but they can't stop because they're floating. Oh, I love that so much. This whole thing too. And you know, with like Faye, she sees like an apple orchard and then there's like a room full of sleeping winos. And then there's the creepy pigeon room. And then there's like one with these plants that, I mean, I it, it's weed, right? Yeah, it looks a lot like weed. That one person even says you want one. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then we move into another room and there's just like a bunch of burnout hippies that are just like smoking joints. But this whole thing is weird because every time they're just quick cutting between Faye and Spike and it's just each cut is they walk into a room, they see something weird and then they go, what? <laughs> yeah. and her, you know, Faye's like, huh? And the, But they do it over and over again. It's like, yeah, this place is full of weird shit. Why are you reacting like this? I will defend their reaction because think about this for just a moment. All they know is that the entire gateway system that controls the universe has been brought to its knees by the ingenious Chessmaster X and they're going to his hideout. It's so bonk. I like just the color patterns they use on the orchard. It's so beautiful. I really love the way it looks. I don't know. I don't I don't buy the reactions just because it's like Jet even tells them, and he's just like, it's exposition time, guys. And he's like, yeah, this, you know, after they, they took all these scrap parts over here and then this whole society started up because there's no laws and no rules and there's no taxes and people can just live there and do whatever the fuck they want. So yeah, you're gonna see some weird shit. It's like a it's like a fucking homeless community. What do you expect? And of course of course they're gonna grow food. Of course there's gonna be garbage and random stray animals. Who brought the pigeons though? That's the pigeons are really weird. Okay. This is Daisato. He wrote this episode. This is totally like him going to Earth when Jet went to Earth and met all the weird people, you know? And also I'll grant it that the people are saying what a lot. And I think that might be more of a Japanese thing. And you know, this montage here, just like the intro, we're getting so many new characters. We're getting so many new locations. Now are they fully decked out sets? No, 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 not of course. You know, that's not what they're doing, but they are designing all these floating winos from the ground up. They're designing what these pigeons are going to look like. They're designing these dogs and these rooms that are just there for literally two seconds. I I think it's tremendous. I love it. And that big long panning shot of just this hippie commune and all these people smoking like this is never seen again. I love it. I just, I love it. All right. Well, finally, by coincidence, after wandering around the ship and seeing all kinds of weird stuff, Spike and Faye, they, they kick down these symmetrical doors and lo and behold, they're in Hex's room. But all Hex really cares about is finishing the game with Ed. So we get this great shot panning from Faye to the sudden appearance of Jonathan. <laughs> he looks so mad. Deus Ex Jonathan, who lost all of his money in Hex's scam and demands it back. He really thinks that, well, he doesn't even know that the money's been like distributed all over the galaxy yet. Yeah. He thinks that it's 
it's just all going back to this guy. Yeah, exactly. So jo- Jonathan has no idea what's going on. He thinks it's like a Ponzi scheme, I guess. I don't I don't know. Literally no one in the room knows what's going on. That's the amazing part. While all three of them have their guns drawn on Hex, Antonio, Carlos, and Joe Beam fly down from the ceiling just to see what Hex is up to. What did you think when this happened? It's like characters I did not expect to see again. Let me see. So we saw them in episode one at the bar. We saw them in episode three. They were gambling. And we saw them in Heavy Metal Queen because they knew uh, VT. And now they're somehow here. Yeah, they are. That's where they, they live. Apparently. They live everywhere all the time. These guys are, are they like start talking to Hex or whatever. Hex forgets that he had lunch because they're like, What do you want to do now, Hex? And he's just like, I want to eat lunch. And they're like, Oh, you big dummy. We just ate five minutes ago. And then Jonathan comes to the realization that Chessmaster Hex is actually senile. Who are these guys? Don't know. But this one is losing it. You leave your brain somewhere. Yeah, and you can talk your numbers. All that savings gone. I'll never get it back now. Damn it. God damn it. Anyone, everyone, you, the whole world. It's all a mistake! This whole sequence of events is very strange. I adore that bit of animation of him just firing wildly and laughing. It's like, that is that is big mood, man. That is like, I am there with Jonathan so many times during the week. I wish I had my grenade launcher and could just let loose. Also, I actually paused it to see, and it's Spike that punches uh, Jonathan, because I thought it might be fake, because all he sees is a fist. Back at the head gateway office, Jet gives the entire backstory, and it turns out Hex committed the crimes over 50 years ago. He's that good, he could plan ahead his moves, and then... He just forgot everything and went senile. So really no one's responsible for this whatsoever, but Jet says he won't leak it to the press so long as they promise to leave Hex alone. And, you know, and he says, oh, you know, we wouldn't want Ed to lose her favorite chess player. What? Okay, I understand them being like, leave Hex alone. He's 98 and he's senile. They don't want to see this guy getting dragged into some prison. Like they have enough empathy for that. But couldn't they they ask for some money too, please? Sure. Like, couldn't they be like, you leave him alone and we want 50 million wool. They run all of the gateway systems in the universe. Yeah. All of them. And they don't get any money out of this. Yeah, the, the, the whole way that this ends, we're like, well, be senile. And then they just, they don't do anything to get any money. Like, they don't even go back and be like, well, we stopped this from happening again, so don't worry. Like, <laughs> there's nothing. They're very bad at their jobs. I will say at least the scheme that Hex does is, is really smart because he set it up so that it would be uh, 50 years when they would have scheduled tech upgrades. That's what they say. And I was like, what does that mean? So, like... I don't understand why they mentioned that. I thought about it for a while. It's like, oh, of course. They would be able to open up the hatches and it wouldn't seem unusual. Like they would assume that there was a there was a maintenance for that gate at that time when people were really stealing. So we really had a good plan. Mm-hmm. We head back to the Bohemian Satellite Colony and old Jonathan is there smoking one of those big funny cigars. I was wondering about that because it didn't seem like he had a cigar on him before. Yeah, and then uh, Antonio and Carlos and Joe Beam are big compliment how nice he is. Uh, kind of <laughs> a happy ending, I guess. Not really. It's like Jonathan had a mental break and now he's just living in a homeless colony smoking weed. But he doesn't have any money. So what else is he going to do? I guess he could sell his ship. He's got a nice ship. What is he doing? And a very nice stogie. We also have our chess game that's going on. So Chessmaster Hex finally delivers Checkmate to Ed, which ends their week-long game. And it sends her, like, squirming on the ground. And uh, as Hex once again closes his eyes, his green parrot flies away, and a single green feather lands perfectly next to a king piece as we cut to see you, space cowboy. And I want to say, I like the part at the end where Ed does the dramatic, you got me! <laughs> yeah. Checkmate. Checkmate. 
holding her heart. Yeah, just like flops back like she was just killed in a spaghetti western. And I love Hex going, checkmate, checkmate. He's so- Checkmate! He still hasn't lost that luster for the game. You know, when Spike says like, oh, the old man here, there's just an old man that likes to play games. It's so true. My liver spots tell me what the best next move is. You know what's funny though? I, uh, the very first time I ever saw this episode, uh, and for many, many years, I assumed that he passes away at the end of the episode, but I don't know why I thought that because really all that's going on is the game is over, so he's closing his eyes, which means he's been awake for a week and and just like in the beginning of the episode, he opens up his eyes once the game starts. So it's just that's how he works. Yeah, exactly. Uh, now, first of all, I want to talk about this ending because this ending is fucking brilliant. And I'm going to get way too deep into this. All right. I'm reading too much into it. Oh, don't worry. I'm going to make funny as soon as you're done. I promise. First of all, the song is Waltz for Zizi, which is amazing. We've ever first heard in episode five when Spike is saying, I'll, I'll take the drink for him. It's such a lovely, lovely song. It makes anything more profoundly sentimental and sweet. But second, I had no idea why this final shot is included. If it was just a regular show, this would end with Hex closing his eyes. He closes his eyes, see your space cowboy, we go to credits. But no, what we see is, is the bird flying up into the darkness and the feather falls. And it's almost luminous. And if you listen carefully, you can almost hear the slightest tap when it lands right next to the king piece. It's fantastic Foley work. Now, I have no idea why that's here or what it means, but there is an emotional resonance that's that's at once complete and a non sequitur and yet the entire point of the episode. Because the feather without the bird and a chess piece without the board, they become curiously abstract and they bear nothing in common. But much like the Bohemians Collective living in the satellite, once they remove themselves from their traditional roles with the uniform structure, they instead begin to uh, share the environment together. That creates their individual beauty being exemplified. That's just a take. It's not the truth, but Steve, obviously I'm kind of showing my hand on how I'm feeling about this episode, but you've been digging in the depths of Funimation.com and Aaron Movie Database. Tell us what the fans thought about this episode. Sure thing, Colin, because as you know, there's nothing I love more than assigning random numbers to art. Over at Funimation, we have four and a half stars, which I believe is every episode so far is in that range. Yeah, about four, four and a half, yeah. It's above average. And at IMDb, dum, 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 a 6.8. And that rating is as as low as it's been so far. It's matching episode three, Gateway Shuffle, and episode seven, Heavy Metal Queen. Oh, wow. Okay, well, uh, we'll talk about that in just a moment. We want to use that as a reference because I think it's funny that episode seven and episode three have that exact same score. Uh, the cigarette counter, none, zero. So we're only at eight. Spike did not smoke a single cigarette this entire episode, but we saw Jet enjoying one in the office and uh, Faye uh, was smoking after they knocked out Jonathan. Which is super weird because it's like, yeah, everybody smokes in this episode, except for Spike. I don't think he trusted the situation. I think that's what's going on. Now, Steve, we have the Bounty County. <laughs> bounty um, County. You made that up. I did make that up. I forgot that I did. <laughs> I'm laughing at my own jokes. Technically, they did cash in the information for an end result, which might not have been monetary, but for the protection of... No, you're shaking your head already. No, no. If fucking Dog the Bounty Hunter lets some ice head go, and then he goes to the police station and is just like, Hey, that meth addict isn't going to do meth stuff anymore, but I don't have him. Are they going to hand him $50,000? No. They're not, because Dog the Bounty Hunter is a good bounty hunter, and he always gets his man, and he has beautiful hair. This is bullshit. They caught 20 people. They didn't catch, they basically caught the mastermind, but then in, like, a weird stroke of empathy, but in a strange way, they, they're just like, ah, fuck it. No. No, is, is ze no, zero. So what you're saying is basically... Three bounties altogether. World's worst bounty hunters. Actually, galaxy's worst bounty hunters. Three bounties altogether, then. Well, Steve, Dr. Steve... What about Ein? Very little Ein in this episode. What will you give it on this week's Einometer? You know, Colin, I'm glad that you asked because when it comes to Ein, I look for quality, not quantity. And here, every frame of Ein 
was beautiful. You could hang it in a gallery. It should be in the fucking Louvre. And that's why I give it a Sven! A what? Sven! A what? That's 10 in German, you idiot. Oh, perfect. 10 out of 10. Good boy, Ein. Episode 14, I'm sorry, session 14, Bohemian Rhapsody. What'd you think? Better than average? Lower than average? It's fine. This is this is another one of those episodes where it's dumb as hell, but not in a way that speaks to me. This is this is the, the monkey level stuff, but the monkey stuff was so over the top that it, it spoke to me. What was that episode called again? That is Gateway Shuffle episode four. Another another one maligned by the community for being too silly. And I'm sure the community probably doesn't like this one either. Well, it doesn't, but I think it's so strange that Heavy Metal Queen is just is so poorly regarded. You know, these are the worst episodes, according to some people, and I just... I don't see it. I think there was a lot more rough edges in the early episodes. Yeah, sure. And, and this one is, it, it's a fine episode to watch. Like, it's fun. It's entertaining enough. The difference between this and the other maligned episodes, like a Heavy Metal Queen or a Gateway Shuffle, it tries to do a little too much. And I think the narrative is really messy. This is this is one of the looser episodes of Cowboy Bebop that I've seen. If not the loosest, not a tight script. So I'm not going to say, fuck it, it's trash. But, I mean, I don't think this is one that should be held in the upper echelons of Cowboy Bebop. Are you going to attribute that perhaps to Dai Sato, who also wrote episode nine, Jamming with Edward? Yes, it's all this guy's fault. Dai Sato, where you at? I'm coming for you, boy. Well, you just remember that we we both seem to have an issue with the ending being just about satellites shooting each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It just it really wasn't an emotional ending for anybody. Yeah, and this ending is kind of like, it ends like a shitty Seinfeld episode or something. It's just like, ba-doom, ba-doom, ba-doom. he's senile. I <laughs> love this episode. I love all Cowboy Bebop, but I really do love this episode because I think it's just, I like it when we uh, get something we haven't received before. And I think we have that here. I think that the idea of us seeing these these big corporations that run the gateway system, the fact that we have this elaborate hacking uh, story behind it, we have this brilliant chess master who's living in this hippie village in outer space. There's so much stuff going on in this episode, I can't help but appreciate it. And there's just so many just bits of animation and new drawings. Like when I look at just that opening sequence with them all capturing someone and the ending sequence when they're doing with all the bohemians, like, wow, I don't know. It, it, I love Jonathan going crazy. <laughs> I, I, I really enjoy this one. It is a light, fun, great episode for me. And, and the use of music, I think, is some of the best uh, with Piano Black and Walter Zizi and Doggy Dog in the intro. Well, I'll tell you what, I'll meet you halfway on this one. Even though I, I didn't really enjoy this episode, because again, it felt messy to me. I will say, I'm issuing an open challenge to Dai Sato. Oh, no. And if he can beat me in one-on-one basketball, <laughs> yeah. then I will uh, announce to the world. You're going to crush him. I will announce to the world that he is the best writer in Cowboy Bebop history. He only wrote three episodes. I mean, he's involved in other things in the background, but it's crazy that he wrote the uh, linear notes on that, that special edition because he... He, no, he does not write the most episodes of anyone. Well, okay, Steve, it's time to wrap up this here episode. Where can people reach you on the internet? I'm so glad you asked, Colin. You can find me on Twitter.com, and you can send me your death threats, marriage proposals, uh, questions, comments, anything, really. And that's at Steve Cuff. That's at Steve C-U-F-F. You can also go to OptimismVaccine.com if you enjoyed this episode. Because, hey, guess what? We got a bunch of other episodes. Imagine that. And in addition to that, we have a whole network of podcasts all about pop culture, movies, television, you name it, we cover it. We especially enjoy looking at things that are underappreciated, under-talked about. We, we want to plunge 
into the dirty butt crack between pop culture and forgotten trash. And you know what we pull out of that butt crack, Colin? No. Good good content, baby. Hey, and while you're at it, why don't you go to iTunes. The Outfatcast is a very good collection of podcasts. You can give that baby a five stars and a written review. Link is in the description below. You have no excuse not to do it. You already know where to go. But you can also find me on the internet on the old Twitter.com at Dr. Karate Chop. That's at DR Karate Chop. And that's going to have to do it for this episode. For Steve Cuff, I'm Colin Tanner. See ya, Space Cowboy. But really, what is love? Can I compare Colin to a summer breeze? Is it a song? Is it my dong? Is it a sunset? That's absolutely disgusting, and I can't believe you would say that. Next episode, my funny Valentine. What is wrong with you, Colin? <laughs>